0: Please turn to Romans chapter 7. If you brought your own Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 7. And if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, there should be a Pew Bible around you that looks like this one. Uh, It's the one we preach out of every week so that you can follow along. Uh, The Bible I am seeing is the Bible you can see also. And so open that to page 1002. 1002, it's Romans chapter 7. As we continue our series through Romans, our goal is. Uh, Lord willing, if the creek don't rise, is to be through Romans 8 by the time our Christmas series begins. So hopefully we'll be finishing up Romans 7 this month, next month we'll hit Romans 8, and then we'll have our traditional Christmas series uh, celebrating the birth and the arrival of Jesus Christ. So that's where we are in our study of Romans as we're opening up our Bible. And today we're going to be looking at the relationship between humanity's sinful nature and And the good law of God. You know, one of the most dangerous things when I was a youth intern hanging out with a bunch of junior high boys is the minute you said don't do something, they now want to what? Do it. And those words are very dangerous when you're in youth ministry, you know. Do not point uh, the, the, the gun at someone else. Obviously, everyone wants to just point it for a second, you know. Or do not jump off the deck into the swimming pool, You've just now invited some kid to do what? Jump off the deck into the swimming pool. Or do not go on the church roof to throw water balloons off. You've now given them an idea of what they should do. A lot of times when we hear the words do not, for some reason in our, in our sinful nature, it stirs more temptation and enticement than it does actually deterring the activity that someone doesn't want us to do. Because of our sinful nature, when someone tells you don't do something, for some reason, rather than deterring you from doing it, it actually motivates you to want to do it. You know, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Every kid wants to what? Touch that stove. And you're saying, well, maybe, maybe humanity hasn't always been like this. Well, Adam and Eve in the garden don't eat of that tree. And what do they decide to do? Eat it. Yes. The Ten Commandments come out. One of the Ten Commandments says, do not make yourself an idol. Moses goes up on the hill to actually get the copy of the Ten Commandments. And what are they in the process of doing? Making an idol. Oh, they go to conquer Jericho, where they march around Jericho seven times. The walls fall down and God gives them a big victory. And then God said, don't take any of the loot from Jericho. Do not take anything. It is all idols and you do not need to take it. And as soon as Achan heard do not take it, Achan said what? Well, i got to try it before I agree. And he scooped up the idol and took it with him. See, unfortunately in our Bible, a lot of times when God gives us wisdom like do not do this, our human nature twists that or manipulates that and actually it stirs more curiosity than anything. When we hear do not, a lot of our first re- responses is why not? Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Well, why should I not covet my neighbor's stuff? Maybe I need to knock it before I, before I de- dismiss it. What's the saying? You have to try it before you knock it. You sure, Calvin, yes. If I tell Calvin a chili cheese burrito at Taco Bell is the best item on the menu, and he gives me a weird, nasty face, I would say what? You have to... Don't knock it till you, don't knock it till you try it. Obviously, this is his philosophy, And in his morality, when God says, do not do this, Pastor Calvin, Pastor Calvin, unfortunately, before Jesus, would say what to God? Don't knock it till you try it. it A lot of times when God tells us don't do something, we, we ultimately want to be the judge of whether that's good wisdom or not. And so what happens is God gives us this good and beautiful and holy law. He gives us this moral conduct in the Bible. We call it holy because he is holy who gave it. We call it good because he's a good God. We call it just because he's a just God. So God has given us all this wisdom, all these proverbs, all these teachings, all these parables. And before you have the Holy Spirit, that's very important for us to understand. Pre-Jesus, every time that wisdom was introduced into your life, your your sinful nature would find some way of using it not to deter you from sin, but actually to entice you to sin. It's amazing the depths of our depravity. It's amazing the depths of our rebellion against God. That even when God gives us wisdom, we find a way to manipulate it as an invitation to more sin. You know, don't commit adultery. And there's a party that says, well, maybe I could manage two wives. Calvin laughed. Pre conversion, Calvin. And so that's what we're looking at today. If I, if I, if I do my job well, we're going to have a better understanding of the relationship of God's law and our sinful nature, both prior to conversion and post-conversion. We're going to know who is to blame when it comes to sin and our bad choices. And if I do my job extremely well, you'll leave here today knowing that you can be delivered from this state. That there is a deliverance from this sinful twisting of God's good law If you will die and be united with Jesus. You can get out of the sinful nature that you have been born with. You can get out of the sinful nature. That even when you have wisdom being shared. You find a way to turn it into a sinful desire. You can get out of that trap. Out of that misery today. If you will die and be united with Jesus. All of us start here. So what we're going to learn today will not be something new to anyone. All of us by nature... When we hear wisdom given to us, find ways of trying to work around it rather than to work with it. I actually want to start in verse 7 today and start with verse 7 through 13 and then go back up to verses 1 through 6. The reason is, is I want us to see that when Paul talks about being released from the law, he's talking about being released from the sinful manipulation of the law. And we won't understand that till verses 7 through 12, and I think it'll be a little more clear to understand what is Paul talking about being released from, all right? So let's start in verses 7 through 13. This is an autobiog- autobi- autobiographical uh, part of the Bible where Paul is talking about how his sinful nature twisted a good and holy law. Paul starts in verse 7 by saying, what should we say then? Is the law sin?" The reason he's asking this question is because in the verses right above this, he talks about being released from the law, and how the law stirred him to sinful passions. Look at verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law. So the law was arousing his sinful, rebellious heart. And so he gets to verse 7, and he anticipates that someone who's a biblical person is going to say... Well, then, Paul, are you accusing the law of being sinful? Are you calling the law of God evil? Are you saying that what God gave us, he gave us something that was dark and evil and something that hurt us? Is the law inherently evil? It's kind of like the questions he answered in chapter 6. Should we sin more so grace abounds? You know, this idea that Paul's anticipating the counter questions. And look at Paul's answer, the very first two words after, is the law evil or sinful? He says in a very straightforward, somewhat of an aggressive way, he says, absolutely not. Now that's the short answer. Take your finger down to verse 12. Here's the longer answer. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. So what is Paul's perspective of the law of God? When I say the law of God, I think of like the Mosaic law. What is Paul's perspective of the law that Moses received in Exodus? What is his perspective? That those rules, that morality, that system of living is holy. It is holy because by nature it must be because of who it came from. The law reflects the lawgiver, the law had to be written, and the person who wrote the law was God. And we know from the Bible that God is holy. So the law is holy. It sets you apart. It makes you look like Him. It has no darkness. It has no unrighteousness. There's nothing of injustice in it. It's holy. It's pure. The second adjective that Paul gives the law is it's just. It's just. It points out what is right. It leaves no room for for wrongdoing. And by its nature, it brings about justice. And also the law is good. The law is good. It's beneficial for mankind. And so Paul says, when we must be released from the law, which is what we're going to have in our second point, the question is, Paul, if we're being released from the law of God, is the law of God bad? And Paul says, no, 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 no. What Moses received was holy and good and just. Absolutely by no means am I saying that the morality of God in the Old Testament is wrong. No, by no means am I saying we should unhitch from the Old Testament, or that we should become anti-law, or somehow we should get rid of the morality. Listen, you should have no other gods beside me is a good moral law, amen? You should make no idols, you should not commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet, keep the Sabbath. All of that is good, holy, and just, Here's the problem, though. What made it appear to be evil was not the law, but rather the sinful nature of humanity that twisted it. Listen, I learned a lot this week. If you'd asked me to uh, explain this passage to you three weeks ago, I may have struggled a little bit. I have learned a lot about how the depths of humanity, that the sinfulness of who we are, it's embarrassing that God tried to give His people Good and holy and just ways of living. Remember what? If you keep this law, I will bless you. I'll give you land. I will give you a harvest. I will give you security from your enemies. I want to do good for you. So obey this law and I will bless your people. And those rotten, wretched sinners of the Old Testament did everything other than what? Obey that law. And you know what happened when they didn't obey it? Curses and death and swallowed up by the earth and disease being bitten by snakes see god tried to give them something holy and good and just and somehow to the ability of only humanity we found a way to disobey it so let's walk through that now let's look look at verse 7b paul begins to unpack the relationship between law and sin he says but i would not have known sin if it was not for the law for example i would not have known what it is to covet If the law had not said, do not covet. So the first thing the law does that we need to understand its relationship, law and sin, is that the law identifies what truly is rebellious against God. The law, the Mosaic law, it tells us what is evil. It tells us what is dark. It tells us what is ungodly. It identifies unrighteousness. It also prescribes godliness. It prescribes a light. It prescribes goodness. And so the first thing that the law does is it calls sin sin. When you read the law and it says you should not lie, when you lie, you know you're rebelling against who? God. If the law comes from the lawgiver, and you break the law, then now you have violated or rebelled against the who? The lawgiver. So the first thing the law did is it told humanity ways to please God and ways to displease God. And one of the ways Paul points out here is what? Thou shalt not covet. So now, ever since the law in Exodus, we have to know that all of humanity has been informed you should not live every day wanting what your neighbor has. To wake up every day and want to have what your neighbor has, to have the cars they have, the boats they have, the life they have, the wife they have, the kids they have, the picket fence they have, the job they have, the bank account they have, the luxury they have, the vacations they get. Whatever it is, you as a human being were not created to look at your neighbor and spend all of your life desiring what they have and you don't have. And when you do that, the law has told us when you do that, you are violating the law of God, which makes you a sinner, a lawbreaker, a rebellious one. So the first thing the law did was, it helped you and I know what we should and shouldn't do. And then when we realize we shouldn't do something, and we find ourselves doing it, there's another C word that comes up, conviction. The law called sin, sin, and the law convicted the consciousness of sinners. That's what the law does. You want to know what sin is? You want to know how not to live? Go read the law. And then as you're reading those rules and you come across ones that you break every day, you're going to feel what? You're going to feel convicted. Now listen, that conviction is universal because none of us are perfect. That conviction is actually the first step to salvation. It's the first step to recognizing your need of a savior. If you, if you follow uh, Ray, what's his name, Ray Comfort. You know, Pastor Calvin Adam quoted him three straight weeks in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. He starts all every gospel presentation with the law. Why does he start with the law? Because the law defines what's wrong and it brings conviction upon the sinner. And that's what Paul says here, is it not? I would not have known what, what it means to covet. And I did not know I shouldn't do it until the law told me. But here's the scary thing. Look what happens after the law is introduced. Look at verse 8. And sin, now that's our sinful nature, that's our sin inside of us, that's the thing that rebels against God. And sin, seizing an opportunity through that commandment, through the you should not covet, produced in Paul more coveting of every kind. So Paul says when he realized that coveting was wrong, and he realized he was convicted of it, His sinful nature was so good at justifying its actions. His sinful nature was so evil and so dark and so deep that he turned conviction into motivation to do more of it. He turns the law into a catalog of more sin he could go and find. This is pre-Jesus. Understand, if you're not saved in this room, this is how you live every day. You may understand right and wrong, but you will always crave more wrong. You may want rights, you may say, I don't want to do sin anymore, I want to change, but until you accept Jesus and you get a new heart, no matter how much you want to stop, you'll always want more, one more of the sin to a greater extent. One more sin will always be more appealing than no more sin. And guess what? I had that nature, and every Christian in this room had that nature, that's what God saves us out of. And Paul says, I had that same nature. You would think God teaching me not to covet, put sin to bed. But actually, my sin was so strong, it actually started up, it enticed it, it motivated it, it grew it to where I actually wanted to do more of it. It's kind of like, don't awake a sleeping giant. Once Paul understood covetedness, he desired it more and more and more. Douglas Moose says, it's the tendency for humanity, forbidden fruit always looks sweet. Forbidden, forbidden fruits always look sweet. The person you can't be with, always, you always think they would be a better spouse. The backup quarterback is always a better quarterback than the guy that's already losing games. All right, Forbidden fruit always looks sweeter. And we saw that in the garden with Adam and Eve. We saw that with the golden calf. We saw that with Achan and bearing up the treasure in Jericho. When someone is told you can't have something, for some reason our human nature is able to to twist that and say, actually, you do want that. John Stott says it's called contra-suggestibility. It's the propensity of some people have to reach... Uh, to react negatively to any command that's given to them. Or as I tell my kids, it's reverse psychology. You tell them you want ice cream, now all of a sudden they don't want to eat ice cream. All right, You tell them to eat their vegetables, they don't want to eat their vegetables. Maybe we should tell our kids from day one, I don't want you to eat those vegetables. And then maybe all of my kids would eat all of their vegetables. But listen, it's not just children. If you don't accept Jesus, this is going to be you as a teenager... This is going to be you as a young adult, this is going to be you as an adult, this is going to be you as a senior adult, and this is going to be you on the day you die. You're always going to have a rebellious attitude towards the wisdom of God. No matter how much you don't want sin, you definitely don't want the wisdom of God. Some of the most dangerous words that God could ever say to humanity is, do not think in the Bible, how many times that Israel were told, do not do this, and then if you closed your Bible, and I said, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you can predict the end of the story, all of you are going to say what? They went ahead and what? Did it. Do not intermarry. Close your Bible. Skip two chapters ahead. The men of Israel gave their daughters to the Philistines. Why? Thank you. Why? Do not let any of these people remain, for their false gods will be a thorn in your side. Close your Bible. Three chapters later, the Philistines grew in number and were a thorn in the side of the Israelites. Listen, it is, it is not something that is unique to the Bible. It is unique to all of humanity, folks. Before Jesus, your nature will take what is good and it will make it what is, what is evil. Look what he says in verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law. I think what Paul is saying is, once I felt innocent... I felt innocent before I knew God's commands on my life. I felt alive. I felt good. But when the command came, he probably had conviction. But that conviction did not lead to where he thought it would lead to. Because what does he say? Sin sprang to life again. Notice what he says there. I, I felt free. And then I learned about the law in my awful, sinful nature, rather than the law bringing me into in right with God, it sprang up into even more sinfulness again. And Paul says, and I died. He even says right here, the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. That's like telling a kid, don't jump off the deck into the swimming pool, and then he jumps off and he breaks his arm. And he says, if you would have never told me not to jump off the deck, I wouldn't even have thought about it. Well, sorry, you would think when I said don't do it, you would have understood don't do it. And I think for humanity sometimes, we say, God, if you would have never told me about XYZ, I would have never even thought about XYZ. But once I heard about XYZ, I can't knock it till I try it. It's the danger with our kids. If I sit my kid down, I have the talk with him. One day you're going to have these passions for girls and you're going to start thinking about girls and you're going to want to hold the hand of a girl and you're going to want to date a girl. Well, when do you have that talk? Because if he ain't thinking about girls now, the last thing I want to do is get him thinking about what? Girls. But if I don't have the talk with him, then one of you guys are going to say that I'm not a good dad. But if I have the talk and I say, do not do this, he's going to say, well, why doesn't he want me to do it? What am I missing out on? Listen, you play this cycle all the way through humanity. Now play it in your own life. Think about your rebellious nature to your parents. Think about your rebellious nature to a football coach or a teacher that tried to pour wisdom into your life. Folks, by nature, we rebel against authority. This is who God had to save. This is who God had to redeem. Every time he says don't, we hear why. Every time he says don't do this, we hear let us be the judge of that. Let us give our daughters over to foreign foreign people and we'll see what we what happens let us eat of the fruit and let's see what happens let me see if i can manage addiction and going to work let me see if i can manage a fair and a good marriage maybe i can maybe i can take care of two women at once these other guys can't do it maybe it'll make me a better husband and i can do it i'm gonna i'm gonna be a husband for two women i can do it god says don't do it but but god let me try it and if i agree with you in the end then I'll adopt your principle. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying that when the law came into our lives, it became a window into opportunity rather than a closed door to sin. It became an an idea. What was supposed to bring him life resulted in death for him. In verse 11, he says it again. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. This word for seizing is a military word. It means to advance beyond your base camp. So it's an opportunity, it's a strategic moment where I can take my army and I can gain more ground. I can advance my camp. I can move the boundary marker further. And what sin says is, look, I already had a hold of you. But whenever people tell you about what not to do, it's actually an opportunity for me sin. You know this nature you have? It's an opportunity for me to push the boundary even further. I mean, who wants to, this is not an enjoyable lifestyle, folks, that every time wisdom comes into your life, it's an opportunity for your sinful nature to push your rebellion even farther. To push you even into more spiritual death. Even more consequences. You go from just losing your job to losing your family. You go from, from, from losing a friend to losing all of your friends. The idea is sin takes what is good and holy and just and somehow manipulates it in order to push you further into sin. Because we've got to try it before we knock it. We've got to be the judge of it. And in the end, we get deceived by our false security, and in the end, it kills us. That's why he says in verse 13, Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Did the law bring this death upon me? Absolutely not, church. It was not the law that brought you spiritual death and the consequences of your sin. No, it was sin. Sin. It's your own nature that is getting you into the pickles you're in. You like it, you desire it, you give in to it, you pursue it. It wasn't the law. It's just that you heard wisdom and you thought, well, why can't I have that? And that nature inside of you, your rebellion against God pushed you further into rebellion. It wasn't the law that's to blame. You know who really is the culprit of why you're in a death trap of sin? You. And listen, I could pick on substance abuse because it's an easy cycle you know we have these like gateway drugs where it starts with this light drug and then in the end it gets to this harder drug but I I have a feeling that if you don't struggle with addiction you're gonna hear you hear me only talking about substance abuse folks you can do this with greed you go from changing one number at work to changing two numbers to changing some inventory to taking some money out of the cash drawer to taking more money out of it you can do it with anything folks It's not just substance abuse that starts. But every sin, you can do it with pride, you can do it with lust, you can do it with with, uh, covetedness. Anything, it starts off and you're told, don't do this. And your immediate response is, I want to do it now. And then that gets boring and you're being told by someone, well, at least you don't do this. At least you don't do this. I mean, all you're doing is stealing one pack of cigarettes from Quick Trip. At least you're not stealing a carton of cigarettes. And then all of a sudden, your sinful nature says what? Well, I want to see if I can steal a carton of cigarettes. Well, at least you're only stealing a carton of cigarettes. You're not stealing cartons. Maybe I can steal cartons. And that's how it goes with any sin. is someone says to you, or someone comes along and says, well, at least you're not doing this. At least you're not this. Or at least you're not doing that. And your sinful nature says, well, watch me do that. Folks, you should want to be released from this because it's an ever-ending cycle. What Paul teaches us in 7 through 13 is this. That before Jesus, no amount of wisdom can save you. The law cannot save you. Going to church and just knowing the rules will not save you. Nurture will not save you. Nothing will save you. The only thing that's going to save you is getting rid of that sinful nature. That sinful nature that can take something that is good and somehow produce something that is bad. You know, you think about a criminal. Let's say someone goes and he robs a bank and then he goes to jail. And he's sitting in the jail and he's listing off every reason why he's in that jail. Well, my grandmother didn't love me. You know, I didn't go to the right school. My parents didn't buy me a car. My wife left me. You know, X, Y, Z. My owner fired me. You know, if, if, if all these things wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have robbed the bank. Folks, that's a lie. The reason he's in that jail Is because he robbed a bank. And why did he rob that bank? Because of his own sinful nature. That's the brutal honest truth. We can sit here all day. Why did I steal baseball cards from Quick Trip? I can sit here all day and say, well, I was poor. I didn't have money. My parents didn't buy me anything. Yada, yada, yada. But in the end, I stole them because of my own sinful nature. And that's what you have to wrestle with this morning. That's what Paul is saying here. Is that no amount of good can ever change you until you get a new nature. Because the nature you're born with will take what is good and will make it what is evil. So let me tell you about the release from that. Let me tell you about deliverance from that kind of nature, from that kind of situation that you find yourselves in. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 7. So now we have this idea that when Paul talks about being released from the law, he's talking about released from the sinful manipulation and misuse of the law. All right? Paul says in verse 1, I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he establishes common ground. He says, you know the law and I know the law. He calls them brothers and sisters. Paul is very pastoral. He has affection. He's not trying to be mean to these people. He's trying to lead them in righteousness. And he says, don't you know that the law rules over anyone as long as he lives? So Paul says, as long as you're living... Anything that the law holds you accountable for has power over you, alright? Any contract you make, any business deal you make, anything you sign your name to that has a lifelong commitment, the law holds you into that commitment until you die. He says that right there, it's very clear. The law rules over someone as long as he lives. John Stott says, this authority is limited to our lifetime. The one thing which invalidates it is death. Death brings release from all contractual obligations involving the dead person. If death supervenes, relationships established and protected by the law are then terminated. So law is for life and death annuls it. Paul states this as a legal axiom or truth. A universal accepted truth that should be unchallenged. That if, if you give yourself to a contractual for life, the only thing that can get you out of that contract is death. And then Paul gives you an example. Look at verse 2. For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she marries to another man while her husband is living, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. Then Then she can marry to marry another man. She is not an adulteress. Now the temptation for North American Christians when we read this example is we want to get onto a big tangent about the doctrine of marriage and remarriage and divorce and we end up preaching a 30 minute sermon on something that Paul really isn't trying to accomplish right here. Paul's just trying to give us a simple illustration. When a wife tells a husband, death do us part, that means they're together till what? Death. That's all Paul's trying to say. You are committed to the law until you die. Dying is what gets you out of your till death do us part commitments. So when a wife says death do us part, she's with that man until he dies. Obviously, not to be funny or crude, she cannot be a wife to a dead man. And a dead man cannot be a husband to her. So death gets them out of that relationship to where then she can go and marry another man. She can give herself as a wife because she is not a wife to another man. And Paul's using this illustration because ultimately he's going to say this to you, Christian. You cannot belong to Jesus until you die to the sinful manipulation of the law that you're living in. You cannot belong to God if you still belong to that sinful nature that takes everything that God says, twist it in order to please yourself and not Him. You cannot have a sinful, self-worshipping, self-pleasing personality... And belong to God. Your first husband has to what? Die. Your first husband was the law. And the reason I wanted to start with teaching you what he means by the law. He's not talking about unhitching from the Old Testament. Well just deny the Old Testament and then you can have the New Testament. No. Paul is saying you must die to your sinful manipulation of the law. You must die to this idea that even if God gives me wisdom. I don't knock it till I what? I try it. You must die to the fact that you don't get to negotiate with God. You don't get a say in what holy and unholy is, or godly and ungodly is. You don't get to write the rules. You have to die to the nature you're born with that self justifies, that self argues, that manipulates and twists good things into bad things. You must die to that before you can belong to Jesus. And that's what he's saying with this illustration. Many of you are wanting me to get in this... Well, Would she be free to marry another man if X, Y, Z? Don't go there today. Leave it as simple as this. A woman is bound to her husband. Death do us part until death happens. But when death happens, she may belong to another man. Now take that and read verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters of Journey Baptist Church... You were put to death in relationship to your sinful use of the law... Through the body of Christ... So that you may belong to another husband named Jesus. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you were put to death. Now, what death is he referring to here? We've been preaching this for three or four weeks. That when we accept Jesus, his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. Okay? When, when your country wins an Olympic medal, that's also your medal. When your team wins a football game... You also say we won the game. It's the same idea. You are in a union. And when when it says you were put to death, when you accepted Jesus, your Lord and Savior, his death became your death. You died with Jesus. The old man is crucified. The old self is gone. You died. And guess what that death did for you? It got you out of the marriage you had with the sinful manipulation of God's wisdom for your own self-pleasure. It got you out of that relationship. It got you out of that abusive spouse you had that took everything good that God wanted to give you and made it into everything bad for your life. You got rid of that spouse. You died to that spouse. That spouse is no more. You no longer are married to someone, your own sinful nature, that takes what is good and holy and just and makes it into a catalog of sin, rebellion, and debauchery. Praise the Lord, amen? Because your old way of thinking One more is better than no more. That's gone. And as a recovered sinner, praise the Lord. Amen? I got tired of wanting to serve sin. I got tired of always wanting to to please myself or to find fulfillment somewhere. Always striving but never arriving. Always reaching but never getting there. Never feeling an identity. Always feeling broken. Always feeling empty. Look, you've died to that spouse. And now you can belong to who? So that you can belong to who? Thank you. But folks, don't miss the point. We can't lead you to Jesus today if you're unwilling to die to your sinful nature. And it says right here, through the body of Christ. It's literally his death on the cross 2,000 years ago that makes this possible today. If you're a sinner in this room, he paid the debt that you can claim. He paid your death. There's a death on the table today saying, you can claim this as yours if you're willing to die to yourself." And then look what he says here. He says, "You belong to him who is raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit, in order that you may bear fruit." He talks about the permanency and the productivity. I don't know if a lot of people will see the permanency of this. Um, I found this very intriguing. The only thing that can get you out of death death do us part is one of you what? Dying. We know the promises of the gospel is what? That Jesus died once and for all and he'll never die again. So the new spouse you're marrying, guess what folks? He's going to live for what? Eternity. Your, Your union with him, your marriage with him, your togetherness with him is permanent and it says that his death became your death and his resurrection your resurrection that we have been raised to a newness of life that we have overcome death folks when we die we transition we don't die we transition we will never die we're not going to die jesus never died this is a permanent union till death do us part and death is never coming when you accept jesus as your lord and savior it is a permanent union for the rest of eternity you and jesus are one and the second thing is it shows the productivity look at the last five words here May bear fruit for God see some of you love the idea of being set free from something Pastor who wouldn't want to be set free from sin who wouldn't want to be set free from their old ways of living? Well, I hate to burst your bubble you're set free from sin in order to have the freedom to serve God You're set free from your old life And then you're dedicated to a new life. There is no self autonomy in the Bible You go from living for sin and rebellion to now being owned by God, his possession for his glory and his honor and his pleasure. Okay, it's like the slave illustration. Your ownership papers are taken from sin and death and they're given to God in righteousness and grace. It's like the marriage illustration. Your husband died, but the Bible doesn't say then you get to live single and get to go, you know, waddy-toddy around all the time. I don't know if those are words. You don't get to go, those aren't words, hoity-toity. I don't know what I was trying to say. You don't get to go just, you know, whatever. The minute you lost this husband, you belong to what? This husband. See, that's why Paul's not saying he's getting rid of the law. Because the minute you join Jesus is the minute you're going to honor his morality. You're going to honor his godliness. You're going to honor his righteousness. What he says is what you're going to do. So you're set free from sin, but you're also set to serve Jesus. Jesus brought you into his family so you would bear fruit for God. Yes, you get to go to heaven. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you get to be made to look like Jesus. But ultimately, folks, all of that's ultimate purpose is to bear fruit for who? For God. We are the benefactors of God's plan of salvation. And that's what he says in verses 5 and 6. Look what he says in 5 and 6, and then we'll close this thing up. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law... We're working in us to bear fruit of death. We've already preached that. When you're a sinful person before Jesus, even godly wisdom entices you to sin. It's a sad reality. But now, we have been released from the law. Remember the law there is that sinful manipulation of the law. Since we have died to what has held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit. Not in the old letter of the law. See, notice this. We died so that we may serve in the newness of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. You have a new owner. You have a new landlord. His name is God. Jesus Christ is your Lord. You need to live for him. Yes, he redeemed you from sin. He brought you out of Egypt. But now you're his possession. And you need to honor him. And when Paul says not in the old letter of the law, we know from Romans chapter 2, the differences of the Old Testament new. In the Old Testament, the law was purely external. There was no changing of the inside. And the reason God did that is ultimately to show our need of a savior. He asked his people for hundreds of years to keep a law they could never keep. He told them, don't steal, knowing that he wasn't getting rid of the desire inside of their heart to steal. Does that make sense? It was purely external. He's, he's giving a law to people who are not incapable of keeping it. And ultimately, he did that to show us that humanity needed to be saved. But in the New Testament, he doesn't just give us a law, he gives us a new spirit by which we can keep that law for the first time. The New Testament just isn't external law, it's also inward renewal. For the first time, you walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit, Romans chapter 8, all next month, we walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now the law is not something of a catalog of sin, now it's an opportunity to serve. You should not steal is not a temptation to see what it would feel like to steal. Now, you should not steal is an opportunity to show God how much you love him. That having something you didn't earn is not worth dishonoring him. Does that make sense? You want to make him proud. Being in God's family, you wake up every day and say, "I want my heavenly Father to be proud." Well, how do I make him proud? Do what he has told us to do in the in the law. Make him proud, do what he commanded. But like I've said this whole sermon, the problem you have is Jeremiah 17. The problem we have before Jesus is Jeremiah 17. Listen to Jeremiah 17. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it's incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind, and I test the heart, to give to each according to his ways, according to what his actions deserve. If you're in this room and you're pre-Jesus, you've never accepted him. The problem you have is not the life you grew up in. It's not the circumstances you find yourself in. It's not the rules that God has given us. The problem you have before Jesus radically changes you is you have a heart that is wicked and deceitful. And no amount of law is going to constrain it. No amount of guardrails can keep it in line. No amount of warnings can scare it. No amount of wisdom can train it. No amount of tutoring can tame it. Your problem is that you have a heart that is deceitful and dishonoring and selfish, and, and, and you are never going to please God without getting a transplant. And that's why in Ezekiel 36, he gave his people this promise I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries, and I'll bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle you clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all of your idols. Now listen to this promise he gave Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow all of my statutes, rules, and ordinances. And you will carefully observe them. For those who are not Christians in this room, what that is saying is that you must be born again today. You must die to your old life. You must receive Jesus. And John chapter 3 says that when you receive Jesus, when you look upon Jesus for salvation, that you are born again, that God gives you a new heart and a new spirit. Or maybe you like Hebrews 11 that says your heart needs to be sprinkled clean from the evil conscience. Or maybe it's Peter You need to purify your souls by obeying the teaching of the gospel. So for some of you, you're on the pre-conversion side. And you're wondering why everything you attempt to do to improve your life fails. I go to those classes. I try to follow those rules. I try to work harder on my life. I try to be a better person. Folks, all of that is going to ultimately fail because your problem is the deceitful heart that is within you. And anything good anyone introduces into your life, you will manipulate into an opportunity for sin. That's the pre-conversion side. For you Christians in this room, you're on the post-conversion side where you're looking back and realizing that the only reason you overcome those issues is because the spirit God put in you. The only reason you've seen success and growth and maturity is because you do have a new heart and you do have a new spirit. But all of us are looking to the same moment in time. Some of you are looking to what you need to do. You need that new heart. And some of us are looking back and we're extremely thankful we have it. Because the depths of who we were before Jesus took everything that was good from God and somehow used it to feed our sinful desires. And you'll never get out of that until you're born again, you're sprinkled clean and you purify your soul with the gospel.